Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. I'm Dr. Rich Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Deborah Troutman, President and CEO of American Association of Colleges of Nursing. Dr. Troutman has been an influential voice in national health policy for many years, and I'm looking forward to learning more about her and the AACN specifically what's happening in nursing education today and the overall impact of COVID on her members and nursing in general. Thanks so much, Deb, for being with us today. Thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks. Great. You know, I'd love to let our listeners and, and myself kind of learn a little bit about your backstory and what led you to join the field of nursing in the first place. Sure. So I am the second nurse in my family actually the first baccalaureate nurse. I'm pleased to say that we now have two other nurses, so a total of four. The two most recent are advanced practice nurses. So I'm very proud of that. And how I became interested in nursing is not only one family member in particular, but one of my first positions of employment, I worked as a nurse's aide and I was in a long-term care facility And I was so impressed by the nurse who not only provided outstanding care to the residents that were in the facility, but she was extremely knowledgeable. She was a very strong advocate for the patients and their families. And she created a phenomenal work environment. And every day I saw her make a difference. And I thought, I wanna do that. I want to be like that. And I hadn't seen the full scope of what nursing could do. And that was one of my first exposures. And I was just most impressed because of her leadership, her organization, and the expertise that she had. And my family, my father believed very strongly in the importance of a college education. So I had the benefit of going to school for a baccalaureate degree in nursing. And my baccalaureate then led to a master's and then ultimately to a PhD uh, because I had a quest to continue to learn. And I believe that most of us in um, healthcare for certain have a desire to learn more. So I started out my career at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center before it was the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. It was actually the flagship hospital. And I was able to be a part of that hospital as it developed into a healthcare system. And my work then was primarily, uh, I started practice as an emergency department nurse and then moved into positions of management and leadership. And people have asked, how did you decide to go into leadership or management? And I can remember initially as a practicing nurse saying, I will never do that. (laughs) So I have learned never to say never. I, when I was starting my master's degree, one of the courses that, and my master's was at the University of Pittsburgh in the School of Nursing. One of the courses that, first courses that I took was about healthcare organizations and management. And the course was taught by Marguerite Schaefer. Dr. Schaefer had been the former Dean of the School of Nursing at the University of Pittsburgh. She was not a nurse. She's an educator, a scientist, and a musician, but a powerful woman. And the course was inspirational. And as the more I learned, I thought, I'm interested as a practicing nurse, I learned a lot about what I could do to improve care patient to patient 
and for all of those on my unit. But as I learned more about the healthcare system, or in some cases, the lack of a system, I was really motivated to want to do more, to be a part of making some transformational change. So Marguerite Schaefer, I would say early on, directly and indirectly, was very influential on my career. And then I'll just fast forward. When I was being recruited to Hopkins, I had been at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. It was a great experience. I enjoyed my work and my colleagues there, but Hopkins had an opening for a director of nursing for emergency medicine. And I called Marguerite Schaefer when I was considering the opportunity. And she gave me a lot of great things to think about and, and some good advice. I then accepted and had an extraordinary experience at Hopkins as the director of nursing for emergency medicine first. Then for a while, I was an interim nursing officer at one of Hopkins community hospitals. And then my last position at Hopkins before I came to the American Association of Colleges of Nursing was that Ed Miller, the Dean of the School of Medicine and the CEO of the health system, he was interested in strengthening the opportunity for Hopkins to inform health policy. We had researchers in the School of Nursing, Medicine and Public Health who were doing individually a great job in each of those schools, but he created an interprofessional center for health policy and healthcare transformation. And I had the opportunity to help develop and lead that center. Uh, we had the School of Nursing, Medicine, and Public Health in it. It's now a department, which is good for sustainability, but not quite the same for the visibility. But what it did, that center, was it provided an opportunity, not only for the Hopkins community to learn more about and from policymakers at both the state and the federal level, but it allowed us an opportunity to share some of our research and clinical expertise with these policymakers in, in ways that weren't directly impacting a particular policy, but raising their level of knowledge around policy areas. So that was a wonderful experience. I was only two years into the development of the center when the American Association of Colleges of Nursing announced that they were looking for a CEO. And I wanna come back to Marguerite Schaefer. I didn't know at the time that I met her, but she was one of the founding members of the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. I always knew and thought highly of the association. It is the voice for academic nursing. And when I thought about who it was that was one of the most influential leaders that helped me think about pursuing my own career in a more purposeful way in leadership, and then this opportunity came about, I was like, yay. <laughs> so I was not able to connect with her at the time because she wasn't as well. But many who know her let her know about the fact that this was the next step in my journey. So I think what I'm gathering is that we all need a Marguerite Schaefer in our life. Is that what you're telling me? Yes, yes. And we all need to be one of those for someone else. The importance of a mentor. And uh, one of the experiences I didn't share is that I was a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow. I had the privilege of working for then and now the Speaker of the House, and it was an extraordinary experience. I tell people, and put your politics aside, to work for the Speaker of the House who sets the agenda and to work for that Speaker during the development and the vote for the 
the Affordable Care Act, it was just an experience that I could have never imagined uh, that I would have had. And how I learned about the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship was one of the committee members for my dissertation was a faculty member and still is at the School of Nursing at Hopkins. And she said, you know, you want to look into this fellowship. They're interested in, in finding more nurses. And it had started primarily for physicians, but became more interprofessional over time. So I think the importance of having a mentor and being a mentor is just foundational to a satisfying and successful career. Yeah, and I actually I know that fellowship program fairly well. I have friends that have gone through it, and and I can attest to how solid that networking and mentorship opportunity is through that group. RWJF is incredible. I'd love to ask you more about your time with Nancy Pelosi when they were trying to get this very important legislation passed. And, and I guess in recent years we've had this, I'd say, movement almost to to push towards wellness and preventative care. And so, what is your sense on where efforts are? from a policy perspective on making sure that that happens within healthcare? Well, as you said, and the Affordable Care Act did have uh, some focus on promoting health and wellness. Uh, the Affordable Care Act also primarily was about expanding insurance coverage, removing barriers, and it had, of course, elements about improving the healthcare delivery system. We have spoken in the policy world before about the importance not just of passing policy, but then all that must go around successful implementation. But I'll leave that aside for right now and say that you know, I think that there were some strong elements, but there is so much further we need to go as a nation in strengthening our policies. And even in all that was in the Affordable Care Act, we're still not yet, I believe, as strongly focused on prevention, on wellness, and providing a system of care that facilitates a, transi a smooth transition. Uh, most, and we all know, our focus has been up until recently on the acute care delivery system and fixing what ails the acute care delivery system. There were members of Congress early on and of different perspectives, as well as different ideologies that had strong and differing views, for example, about prevention. Something that I found phenomenal, and I never thought this would have occurred. I was meeting with a member, and it was actually of our caucus, uh, uh, the Speaker's Caucus, the Democratic Caucus. And as a fellow, you don't have to be aligned with that party. But when you're in the office, it's our office. But when I was meeting with some of the members and their staff, that the, the member came in in particular and was very adamant about some particular provisions um, that were intended to focus on wellness, but they weren't evidence-based. And it just so happened that in my master's program, I had had a deeper dive into that particular area. So I quickly had a reference that I could pull forward in the meeting, some key points that brought science to bear on the policy and was able to then help this member of Congress see how we could still work to accomplish her goal, but we had some staff work to do before we could get the language quite right. And the reason that I share that is that there are examples, I believe, where our policymaking does indeed value evidence. I think a concern that we're all facing right now is that as the evidence continues to unfold in this pandemic, we are seeing examples where evidence isn't guiding 
our actions and it isn't guiding what is in the best interest of the safety of the country. And I remember that example and many more since where we cannot underscore the importance of evidence and that as healthcare professionals, nurses, physicians, and others, we have a responsibility to help generate that knowledge, but then be able to be strong advocates and spokespersons for it. Yeah, you uh, covered a lot of ground and I think that that makes a lot of sense. And specifically, I'd love for you to comment on how, let's say everyday nurses, folks that are on the front lines can then also be advocates. Like what are some points of advice you'd have for folks that aren't necessarily rubbing elbows on the hill, but, but are actually seeing patients? What are things they can do in their communities? Yeah, well, I think uh, there are many opportunities for nurses that are providing care in a acute care setting, in a primary care setting, um, in a federally qualified health center to advocate not only for policy changes at the organizational level, which we need those, we need to continue to evolve better policies in the care of patients while they're in, you know, experiencing the healthcare delivery system, but also to think about our advocacy efforts and how they extend beyond that. So, you know, a great example is domestic violence. Um, as an emergency department nurse, myself and others had many opportunities to see some of what the consequences are of domestic violence, and we better understood issues around screening and detection. So I was honored to be, as a nurse, a part of a very interprofessional group, individuals from the state's attorney's office, from social services, a very wide group that looked in Baltimore City at the time on what we could do as a larger system to implement change that improved our response and assistance to those who were victims of domestic violence. So that's one example. And nurses have been advocates for certainly a lot around what we're facing now with addiction, with the opioid crisis. Nurses have been strong advocates for healthier living, childhood obesity. They're just on many areas. And I believe oftentimes the experiences that we have, they not only inform us, but they usually give us an opportunity somewhere that we can think about how we can share those stories with others to help them better understand not only the problem, but propose some recommendations for potential improvements. Now, thinking about your member institutions, how are they applying this in terms of their training? Uh, are, are you getting the sense that a lot of the schools out there are training new graduates to think in this way? Yes, yes. Well, so academic nursing has, as all of the health professions, continues to evolve and assure that we are doing everything we can to prepare not only the workforce of today, but what we need for the future. ACN has over 840 schools, and there's a lot of diversity within those schools, but the importance of evidence-based practice, the importance of advocacy, and advocacy at many levels, um, individual, greater, I would say it's a strong component of the educational preparation and curriculum. So what, what about COVID? So I'm thinking about, um, you know, in a pre-COVID era, this was all needed. In a post-COVID era, advocacy is needed more than ever, it feels like. And there are all sorts of changes happening on the ground in terms of how nursing students are getting their clinical hours, how they're getting to transition, whether they're getting kind of a full cohort of experiences. Uh, what are some changes that are happening right now that are facing your members? Sure. 
Well, early on, I would say all of our schools, nursing and health professions across the board, we all had to very quickly pivot from what was considered very traditional to thinking about how we could continue to safely provide education and clinical experiences to our learners so that we didn't create a huge gap uh, with what are gonna be the current and future demands for a workforce. So some programs already had online components, but we saw obviously many who didn't flip to online experiences. You know, we provided as an association and, and the other health professions did as well, some of the guidelines for what our schools should think about. In nursing, we generally are not as prescriptive in telling people you must do A, B, or C, but we provided the context for the decision-making, and that was very helpful for our schools. Uh, of course, we wanted where we could to continue clinical experiences, but only if it was safe to do so. And a factor that many of us realized early on was there wasn't sufficient supply of PPE. So even that was a huge impediment because if there wasn't enough PPE for the providers, then to have the further supply diminished with students created additional challenges. So that really early on was, was something that we all had to pause and address. Many of our schools actually had PPE in their clinical labs on the campus, and they, they donated them to the healthcare systems, hospitals in their areas. So that, you know, that was wonderful to see. We have had the use of simulation in our academic programs prior to COVID, but what we did see was the opportunity to step up those simulation experiences for students. We had cases where some students said that hadn't had simulation. Well, I'm not gonna want that. And then afterwards commented on how fabulous it was, especially for critical decision-making because they're really challenged, but the risk of harm isn't there. So we saw a lot of positives in nursing, which is a little different than medicine. Um, academic nursing and practice nursing leadership haven't always been as closely aligned and we've been purposeful as a profession in the last several decades to strengthen that. But you could see as a response in this pandemic, when you had strong academic practice partnerships in nursing, whether they were formal or informal, we had much, I would say, much better responses uh, because we were able to come together. I had a student early on tell me she was dreading and a nursing student she had assigned to, oh my, the command center of a major academic health center. And she thought it was going to be like the worst experience. I said to her, I'm an emergency department nurse by background. I said, check in with me after you've had that experience for a while. The student called me back and told me what she learned. She said, you know, my job was to track the calls that came in, but I learned so much when I was in that environment about the importance of decision-making, about the importance of evolving evidence, about the importance of flexibility, and key to all of it, she said, was the importance of teams. Students also, we had stories of students telling us that in their health system, they were aware of the immediate restrictions for family and visitors. So they worked out ways to try to create connections and gather information about the families as another example. And then contact tracing is something that some of our students have now received more education. So we've evolved the education program. We also, I want to mention, and I know other health professions had it as 
well. But we had a request in some instances to expedite the graduation of students. And while we understand and the importance of having a workforce, also have to have a competent workforce. So in some instances, and we're all moving towards competency-based education, this pandemic has underscored the importance of that because individuals progress at different times. And it's not as important how many hours you sat in the classroom as how you can demonstrate those competencies. So we've had some schools that were able to facilitate earlier graduations. And then we had other schools, one in particular, who said to our health system leader, there's only six weeks left and they're not gonna get their traditional orientation. So tell me what you need them to know most and I will work on these next six weeks in assuring that they're as strong as they can be in those areas. I think that's another great example of adapting to, but continuing to preserve the importance of a quality education. So our leaders across the country, they've been phenomenal. I love to meet with our leaders. Usually we get to do it in a large crowd, not, not so much always right now, but I get to reach out on individual phone calls. And these are the kind of stories that I learn about, how the faculty step up, creativity, innovation, and then our students are not unlike the general public. Not everyone has access to the greatest Wi-Fi or the other technologic aspects that they need to help. So we've also had to think about how we can help support our students. One school opened up a parking lot that was near their campus because they had greater ability for connectivity there. But there is obviously a lot that we need to think about with respect to as we advance technologic solutions to some of this challenge, how we assure equity and access to for all of our students. You know, one thing you said that I've heard lots of questions around, I'd love for you to unpack your take on it and why it's needed. But you mentioned competency-based, and specifically the phrase I always hear is CBC or competency-based curriculum. Do you mind just explaining why that's necessary, maybe why it's so necessary now more than ever? Mm -hmm. I believe that, and others health professions I think would agree, that ultimately our end goal is to prepare competent individuals to practice. And as we move to competency-based education, it allows us to address the differences in learners in a way that I think the traditional method could not. I don't think it necessarily changes as much the content of what one needs to learn, but it changes how they learn it and how we assess it. And I think that when we improve our ability to assess the competencies of our learners, then we will have provided an even stronger practitioner that's entering the workforce. And for all of us, we need transitions. We could master it, have a stellar program, and I believe we all still need transitions to practice that come with time, with experience, with fellowships or orientations. I'm not negating the importance of those, but I believe that as we strengthen competency-based education, then we allow students to advance at a rate that they're comfortable with. Someone used the example once about you know, the, the learner who becomes bored because they're far ahead of everyone else, or the learner who becomes frustrated because they're not up with everyone else. And I believe that this allows us to recognize just as much as we want diversity of how we look in the profession, we also have diversity in across health professions of how we learn and how we think. And I believe competency-based education gives us a stronger framework to advance quality education. 
Yeah, you're, you're singing my song. This is something I, I care deeply about. You know, we do a lot of flipped classroom or blended classroom mm -hmm. learning uh, for this very reason. So it's exciting to see you all go out and, and advocate for this approach. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this final question because we have a lot of folks in the audience that are students, they're early health career professionals, they're maybe just emerging. What advice would you give them? I mean, they see someone like yourself, you've had a very storied career and you've had the privilege of working in a lot of really amazing places. What would you tell them as they start their journey? Well, I hadn't planned to do this, but I'm going to share a quote because I love Doris Kearns Goodwin and um, a quote that she has shared in a couple different audiences that I love. She said that the more and more she thinks about it, there could be nothing better in life than having work worth doing and doing it well. And I would say that most certainly if you enter nursing, you have work worth doing and you have a responsibility and an opportunity to do it well. I also believe that I didn't understand as much, I would say, when I started in nursing, is just how many doors can open in a variety of ways and you continue to be a nurse. You could be a nurse scientist, you can be a nurse educator, you can be a practicing nurse, you can be a leader. All of these are important contributions that nurses make and we lead in all positions. It isn't leadership by title. So I think that the breadth and depth of what is available to us is number one extraordinary. Many of us were worried early on in this pandemic, were we going to see perhaps individuals less interested in the health professions and, and for me, certainly in nursing. In fact, we have seen that that's not the case, that there is a strong interest in the health professions. Many of our programs are not only meeting their enrollments, but they're exceeding them. So we need to think about how do we address that demand? And we need smart, critical thinkers, compassionate individuals, diversity across all professions so that we can create really the healthcare delivery system and health promotion that everyone, especially in our country, but I would even say worldwide, deserves to have. So the opportunities are unlimited. I would say don't think you're going to have a particular path that you're going to map out because I thought I did, and I would not have prescribed this. So to be open to those opportunities, and then as you had said earlier, it is so important for us to not only continue to commit to our own learning, but what we can be doing to help others, the other students, but others that we come into contact with as we do our work. We just have unlimited opportunities, and I think it's been a privilege and just an extraordinary rich career thus far. And I look forward to many more um, experiences to come. And one comment I'll make, because we did talk a little bit about policy. And I remember a physician that actually worked for Dr. Kennedy at the time and was a friend of mine. She and I were asked to give a talk about health policy right after the ACA was released for review and then vote from the membership. And someone stood up in the audience and said, you're a nurse, you're a physician when did you learn to love politics? We both said, oh, we hate politics, but we love policy. And you can't divorce them. So we do occasionally, uh, I can't be partisan in my organization. We all have our own beliefs. But I think that we have a strong, not only a calling, but a responsibility to be able to take what we know from our experiences, from our knowledge, from our continuous learning and our discovery and research, 
and make a contribution to doing our best. It isn't at the end of the day, only evidence that moves policy forward. I think our relationships are critically important and equally so our ability to communicate the message. So I would say nursing for sure, and the other health professions, but most certainly nursing will give you just an extraordinary opportunity. You're obviously a very incredible ambassador for nursing. So I really appreciate you saying all of that. Maybe that's a good place to close today's segment. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Trotman, for being with us today. It's such a pleasure hearing your story from you firsthand. You tell it so well. Thank you. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>